If you will take your Bible and open to Acts chapter 4 this morning, Acts chapter 4 and find verse 32. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. So we're at the end of chapter 4 in the book of Acts, and we're going to read down through verse 11 of chapter 5. Acts 4:32 through 5:11. The title of my sermon this morning is uh, A Deadly Deception. I'm borrowing that from Chuck Swindoll's commentary. A uh, wonderful title um, A Deadly Deception. Let's read the text together, and then we will dive in. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 begins like this. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and one mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You've not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. Verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. A long time ago, somewhere around the 12th or the 13th century, there was a a 10-year conflict, a 10-year war that took place between the Greeks and the Trojans, and it was called the Trojan War. And during that 10-year war, the Greeks attempted to lay siege to the city of Troy for 10 years with no success. Everything they could do to take out this city, uh, to lay siege to it, they were attempting, until finally someone had the idea, let's build a massive wooden horse. Now, when I say that initially, pretend like you don't know the story, when I say that you think, So you've not had any success for 10 years, and you're going to build a big horse, okay? All right, explain this to me. I'm not tracking. But here's what they said. Let's build this massive wooden horse, and we'll hollow it out on the inside. And on the inside of this huge horse, we will put uh, a special force of, of trained fighting men on the inside. 
and we'll deliver it to the gates of the city of Troy, and they'll, they'll take it in, and, you know, and we'll destroy them from the inside out. So as the story goes, the Greeks delivered the horse to the gates of the city called Troy, and then they pretended to sail away. So I guess they sailed around the cliff, and they just kind of hung out the rest of the day. So the Trojans come out, and they see the horse on the outside of the city. They open the city gates, and they pull this massive wooden horse into the city that was concealing this fighting force of men. So nothing happened, I guess, for the rest of the afternoon. And then later that night, the men that were hidden inside crept outside of this massive wooden hollow horse, and they let in the rest of the Greek army. So they go to the gates, they open the gates. Hey, psst, come on in. And so the rest of the Greek army that had pretended to sail away, they come back into the city of Troy under the cover of night, and they sack the city. And after a 10-year struggle with no success in one night, According to legend, they take out the city of Troy. And so when plan A failed to work, the Greek army changed their tactics, ultimately gaining the victory for their side. They had to change up what they're doing. What's the definition of insanity? Continuing to do the same thing over and over, right, without seeing any different results, something along those lines. So many times in our lives individually and in our lives corporately as a church, we want to see different results, but what? We continue to do the same thing. I had a pastor tell me that uh, this past week. He said, I know I need to work out. He said, but I don't want to work out, therefore I'm not going to work out. And he said, therefore there will be no change. And so I, I know what I need to do, but I'm not going to do it because I don't want to. And so the Greek army changed their tactics and won the battle. Our passage today reminds me of how Satan operates just like the Greek army there in the battle of Troy. Because if he cannot penetrate a church, its outer defenses, if he cannot get into the church from the outside and bring it to its knees through external pressures like what Peter and John faced with the court, then here's what he will do. He will build his own Trojan horse of sorts. And he will sneak into the camp. He will sneak into the church. He will infiltrate the ranks of the body of Christ. And he will attack the church from the inside out. If he can't come out, if he can't take it down from the outside through external pressures, rules, government, things of that nature, he will work his way into the, the, the life of a church. And from the inside out, he will work his cancerous, divisive schemes. And so we see in this text what can happen when even one believer continues to harbor sin inwardly inside while keeping up appearances on the outside that suggest to everyone, I'm okay. Think about what we do so often in church. We walk in, we put on our Sunday best, we put on our Sunday smile that might look different from Monday morning before you've had your coffee. We shake hands, we greet one another, we sit beside our friends, and so often we keep up appearances. That things are okay on the outside. But this passage teaches us no one is immune to the deadly deceptions of Satan. Satan is powerful and alluring, and he will throw things at us to pull us away because he wants to dull our hearts and dull our minds and draw us away. At the end of chapter 4, here's what's going on. The Spirit of God is moving in amazing ways. Okay? The church is booming. Things are growing. The city of Jerusalem is being changed from this small core of 
12 guys that begins to expand and grow organically, we might say. It says the apostles were preaching with great power. It says the church was enjoying great grace or great favor from the Lord on them. You get the feeling that when they came to church, so to speak, their times of worship were rich and deep. I mean, like what we just experienced with Ethan's song. There was a strong sense of unity and fellowship. You see lost people that were turning to Jesus Christ because they look at their Christian neighbors who used to worship in the pagan temples and they're like, man, i got to have whatever it is that they have. And so people are turning to faith in Jesus. And then there's this other marker that's changing the city of Jerusalem. The generosity of this group of people. The generosity of these, many of them, very poor Christians. The generosity of this church is so swelling up that they are sacrificially selling their land and their homes and the things that belong to them. And they're laying it at the feet of the leaders of this church. And they're saying, hey, look, whatever need you know about, go take care of it. I don't have need of that. I can do without it so that someone else can have. See, there's a powerful sense of alignment. This entire last week, I've been reading this book called Values Driven Leadership. It's on the values of an organization or a church. And here's the simple fact. If there's 200 people in here this morning, if we have 15 different sets of values, okay? If one age group values this and another age group values that and one group that sits in the back values this and one group that sits in the front values that, if we don't have a common set of values that rally us together, we will not have a common sense of why we are doing what we are doing. We will simply come to a place and do the same things over and over and over again. But here we see alignment. When your car is not in alignment, can you tell it? Can you tell it? Yes, you can. Why? Because you're going down the road and all of a sudden you see your car kind of drifting off. Like some of you right now are drifting off to sleep. You're out of alignment. (laughs) But you see your car kind of drifting off a little bit and you're like, man, what is wrong? And you take it to the shop and they're like, oh, man, you need an alignment. You're like, what's an alignment? You need to get things back on track. See, there was a sense of alignment. Now, let me say this. How diverse was this group? Far more diverse than we are. Far more diverse than most 11 o'clock churches on Sunday morning. 11 o'clock is one of the most segregated hours that we live in today. But they came together. Why? Because they rallied around a bloody cross. Can I repeat something my seminary professor Alvin Reed has said time and time again? At the center of our faith is a bloody cross. If we don't rally around that, then we will rally around 50, 11,000, to borrow the expression, 50, 11,000 sets of values and selfish agendas. Selfish, not selfish. Selfish agendas. And we will hunger after what we want instead of coming around the cross of Christ and saying, this is what Jesus wants to do in this church. This is what Jesus wants to do in our Sunday school class. This is what Jesus wants to do in this youth group, in this children's ministry. This is what Jesus wants to do in this school next door. We have to come together around the main thing and keep the main thing the main thing. Can I say something to you? I think when we come together in one accord, I'm not talking about getting in the same car. Wait for it. (laughs) When we come together in one accord, in heart, in mind, in spirit, in values, when we come together in that way, I believe that God can and will give us effectiveness with our community, unity in our fellowship, 
and strength in our lives individually. But can I say something else? The reverse is also true. If we choose to harbor sin, if we give the devil a foothold in our lives and we come in here and we're just putting makeup on the outside and nice clothes on the outside to conceal sin and deception and deadness, God will not honor that. In fact, we're only pulling the Trojan horse into the church. So two examples are set before us in this section. We have Joseph called Barnabas and we have Ananias and Sapphira. When I read that section on Joseph, did you notice how short it was? It tells us a couple things. He's a Levite. He's from Cyprus. He's got a nickname because he encourages people so much. He sells a field, brings to the apostles, and then he's gone. We hear nothing else about him for chapters. So why now? What is he trying to teach us about Barnabas when he sets him over and against Ananias and Sapphira? I think we'll see that as we walk through the text together. So let's just walk through. I'll break it down and we'll make application at the end. Verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas is quickly mentioned. This is basically like the little bio on the back of a baseball card. Y'all remember those? We don't have those anymore. I used to collect baseball cards. Flip them over. You read how tall they were. You read how what they weighed, what position they played. You know, you get the piece of gum out of the little pack. Remember the little? Remember that? Get that piece of gum out. You chew the gum. You put the card aside. You know, that's all we have of Barnabas is basically his baseball card. And he sells this field. He brings the money and he lays it at the apostles' feet. Does this scripture tell us that Barnabas blows the trumpet? Hey, everybody, look. Look what I did. I just sold this field, and everybody give me recognition, pat me on the back, and, and put my name all over the place saying that I did this or contributed to that. No? Did he go on Facebook and say, hey, I just want to praise God because he allowed me to... No, he didn't mask it in Christian language. He just simply straightforward, sacrificially, does this act of love. That's enough on him. Then we get to chapter 5. But, do you see that first word there in verse 1? This is a big conjunction. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, second conjunction, if you're being compared to Barnabas and two conjunctions are used about you in the scripture, this is not a good thing. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge. And he brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Over and over and over, I asked this question. What's wrong with what he did? What's wrong? Did God say all of it had to be given? No. That's not what is... That's what nobody did that as a measure of rule and practice. What's wrong with making some money off of selling this property? Did he do anything wrong? Not by selling the property. He did nothing wrong by selling it, bringing part of the money to the apostles. And if he had have said, hey, listen, fellas, here's part of the money. You can have this, but we've got to pay off a debt. And so I'm going to use the other part. That's straightforward. That's honest. It's not deceitful. The trouble comes in verse 2. This is where the whole thing falls apart. Don't miss this. In verse 2, the Greek word for kept back. It says he kept back. 
Now, initially, you think he just stuck it back in his wallet. The Greek word for kept back is the word nosfizo. It's a fun word to say. That's the only reason I put it in there. Nosfizo. It means to deprive, to rob, to misappropriate, or to make secret reservation. Okay, so let's be real here. You put your money in the plate this morning. Do you want someone to go downstairs with your money and make a secret reservation in their pocket? Do you want someone to misappropriate your funds that you are giving what you think is to the Lord and it goes somewhere else? No, you don't. You want that money to be handled rightly with integrity and fidelity and uprightness. And that's what we seek to do at this church. That's not what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. They were depriving. They were robbing. And so Barnabas gives freely. He gives truthfully. But how does Ananias and Sapphira give? Hypocritically. Falsely. Pretentiously. They led the apostles to think, here's the whole thing. We sold it for this amount. Here's all of it. And so what they're doing is they're trying to pat themselves on the back and look really super spiritual. So verse 3, here's what Peter does. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Peter confronts them in their sin. He confronts them in their sin. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Can I, can I step out of this second and say this? When you read your Bibles, don't read it like it's boring. Don't read it like, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Lie to the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing book. This is a living and active book. Do you think Peter looked at him and said, Ananias? No. I'm sure he pled with him. This broke his heart. I'm sure he said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back the proceeds of the land. Part of the proceeds. He says, wasn't it yours while you possessed? In other words, couldn't you do what you wanted to with it? And after it sold, wasn't it at your disposal? In other words, God is a gentleman. I heard one pastor say, he's not forcing you to do anything. It belonged to you. He wants to see what you're going to do with it. He says, why did you plan this thing in your heart? You didn't lie to people. Who did he say you lied to? church who did he say he lied to to God when he heard these words Ananias dropped dead and a great fear came on all who heard the young man got up wrapped his body carried him out and buried him first time there's the Trojan horse Ananias from all accounts appears to be a Christ follower most scholars think he was a Christian why one of the reasons is because all of the people that are mentioned right around him are believers. There's no reason to think initially that he's not a part of the church. He's supposed to be a Christian. He's supposed to be living like it. But what did Satan do? Worked his way into the church through one man being tempted and sinning against God. Peter says, you didn't lie to me. You lied to God. Ananias falls down stone dead. Verse 7, three hours later, his wife Sapphira comes in. There's no cell phones. Nobody's texting her. Nobody's hitting her up on Facebook saying, you're not going to believe what happened to your husband. Nobody's doing that. There's no form of communication. She comes in three hours later. She's got no idea what's happened, and Peter finds her. Peter goes right to her, and what does he say? Are you aware of the sale price of the land? Is that how much you sold the land for? And when she says yes, it becomes obvious that she was in on the deal. You say, I don't see that. Our English Bibles don't give that to us. Because listen, the word Peter uses to describe her agreement with her husband is the word symphoneo. 
symphoneo. Now, if you're really refined and cultured, and you're going to recognize that word is our word for symphony. Symphony. They were in unison. They were harmonizing together. They were playing different parts but singing the same tune. And so, this is a really bad joke, but I have it here, so I'm going to share it. If they were to start, please laugh for me. If they were to start a musical group, they would be the harmonizing hypocrites. Thanks. That'll sell some albums, won't it? The harmonizing hypocrites. And what does God do because of their hypocrisy? He strikes them dead. This, to me, is the scariest part of the passage. This terrifies me. As I studied this this week, I'm starting to realize how deeply rooted the deception had become in Sapphira's heart. How deeply rooted. This is a kind of a gross example, but I'm going to use it because maybe you need to wake up right now. I don't know. On my hand, I, I don't have it anymore. I used to have a wart on my finger. Okay? And every time the wart would, would, would spring up, you know what I'd do? I would get some fingernail clippers and I would clip the top off. I told you it was gross. All the kids are like, ugh. I would clip the top off of that thing. And guess what? For about two or three days, it looked brand new. It looked exactly like I wanted. Everything was good. I thought it was gone. And then what happened three days later? The root of that wart would rear its ugly head and grow back up. And a few days later, I'm having to go back and do the same thing over again. What did Andy Griffith say? Oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we practice to deceive. How do you get out of a lie? You either get busted or you tell another lie, right? So Ananias tells the first lie. Sapphira was going to tell the second lie. They're not getting out of this thing because God knows their heart. Does that scare anyone in this place this morning? If we are secretly concealing sin in our lives, God knows it. We are not fooling him. Is he waiting to strike you down? I don't believe that. The scripture says he doesn't want any to perish. You know what he's waiting for? If you're secretly concealing sin in your life, he's waiting for you to repent. Am I necessarily talking about being right here on your knees in 10 minutes? No. But here's what I'm talking about. Being on your knees of your heart before God and saying, I was wrong. I've been living a lie. I've been doing exactly what your word tells me not to do. And I know better. And if you told me to go this way like Jonah, I went that way. And you know what? James McDonald said it this week. God will spare no expense to get us back on the right track. He cares about where we are in our lives. Have you ever heard this saying before? Sin will take you further than you wanted to go cost you more than you wanted to pay, and keep you longer than you wanted to stay. Sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It will cost you more than you wanted to pay, and it will keep you longer than you ever dreamed that you would stay. Satan knows that. Satan knows that. He knows if he can hook you and pull you away, and deceive you, and snow you, and fleece you. He's going to laugh at you when you're destroyed by the sin in your life. He's going to mock you. 
He's going to pretend to be your friend, and then he's going to mock you. This is weird, but this is my third Pinocchio reference of the day, so bear with me, okay? If you're in my Sunday school class, you heard my second one. What happens in the movie Pinocchio? They put all this great-looking stuff in front of these boys. And the boys go for it, and they fall for it, and they're hooked by this appearance of this sin. And then they end up snared by their own foolishness. And who ends up laughing in their face? The big guy. I don't know his name. The big mean guy. You know what Satan wants to do? Hook us, deceive us, listen to me, and destroy us. And he wants to laugh in your face when it's all over. And shake his fist in God's face and say, see, I got one. God is calling us to repent. You don't even have to wait to the invitation. If you need to repent right now, then, then, then repent in your heart. You don't have to stand up and leave. You don't have to go anywhere. Just bow your head and say, God, right now, I'm turning back to you. Peter gave her one final chance. And what? She wouldn't give up. She held on to it. That's the deadly, deceptive power of sin in our lives. It causes us to become hard-hearted. We miss God's kindness and His grace, and we go on to our own destruction. Verse 9, Then Peter said to her, Why did you agree? Symphoneo. Why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Verse 10, instantly she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, second time, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. So they just now get the body wrapped up and covered in spices of Ananias. They make it back to the house and like, boys, we're going to wash up and sit down and eat. And they show up for a mater sandwich. And they find this lady laying on the floor. Now, nobody talks about this anywhere I've read. But imagine being those young men. Are you going to want to lie to God after you see that? No. Man, you ain't going to sleep for a week. And then look at what it says, verse 11. Then great fear came on the whole church. A fear. Not a phobia. It's the word phobos. But it's a sense of awe and reverence and respect. Came on the whole church and everyone who heard it. This is the third great that Luke uses in this section. Great power in the preaching. Great grace on the church. Great fear when they see how God deals with sin. So rather than see the purity and holiness of his church tarnished and compromised, God sovereignly chooses to take them out. Can God do that to us? You bet he can. So let me close by giving you just a few points of application with a few time, few minutes we have remaining. Jot these down if you're taking notes. Number one. The power of sin to deceive us is unfathomable. The power of sin to deceive any of us is unimaginable. We have to be on our guard spiritually. We have to stay in the word. Hide thy word in my heart that I might not sin against who? Thee. Against God. Be careful what we allow into our minds through media. When we pick this thing up and we're you know, doing our deal on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and whatever else is out there that I don't know about that started this morning, be careful what you allow into your minds. Watch how you use or waste your time. Establish an accountability relationship with someone that knows you 
And you have an open avenue into each other's lives to speak truth. Because why? The power of sin to deceive is unimaginable. Number two, the devil is relentless in his attempts to wreak havoc in a church. If we allow him, he will work to infiltrate our church, create division, disunity, dysfunction, and destroy us from the inside out. And can I say one thing? Sometimes it's not even that ugly. Sometimes he just offers up a a nice shiny distraction. Sometimes it's not even that ugly. Sometimes he just gives us a nice shiny little distraction and says, here, look, just fix your eyes on that for a little while. And we find ourselves off course and we're not a great commission church like Jesus said that we ought to be. We cannot be fooled by those things. We must fix our eyes on Jesus. And so we ought to pray for and seek to actively build unity within our church. Third, it is entirely possible to be one of two things. A, a lost church member. It is entirely possible to have your name on this roll. There's 477 of us, officially, on paper. And it's entirely possible to have your name on a sheet of paper and not have your name in the book of life. 100% possible. You know why? We can fool each other, can't we? We can put on airs. We can put on faces. We can keep up appearances. We can look super spiritual and be full of dead men's bones like the Pharisees that Jesus said in Matthew 23. So please, church, do not be fooled into thinking, my name's on the roll, I'm good with God. He's not checking our roll sheet. He's checking his. But second, it is entirely possible to be a deceived believer under the influence of Satan. To be a deceived believer, Satan, if you're a believer in Christ, Satan cannot fill your heart. Your heart is possessed by the Holy Spirit, but he can lead you away. He can lead you away. He can get you off track, harboring sin in your life, and he wants to destroy you with it. Fourth, God is not interested in us keeping up appearances. God doesn't care about how we look on the outside. You remember Jesse's sons? Remember the prophet shows up and says, that's him right there. He looks like a king. Nope. God says, not him. Well, the next one, he looks real kingly. He's big and strong. He works out at the Y. Nope, not him. Oh, but the next one, he's a big hairy man. I mean, he's a king. Nope, not that one. It goes right down the list. Do you have anybody else? Oh, we got one more, but he's just out in the field keeping the sheep. Bring him in. Holy Spirit says, that's him. Because God's not looking at the outside. God's looking at the heart. Psalm 24 says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Listen to this. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Anybody here have clean hands and a pure heart apart from Jesus Christ? Answer is no. How do we get clean hands? How do we get a pure heart? We trade our rags for riches. We give Jesus our sin. He gives us free salvation. We give him our worst. He gives us his very best. That's the only way we ascend the mountain of the Lord. We don't ascend it. Jesus is the elevator that takes us there. Fifth, God is not soft on sin. Let me say that again. Let that sink in. God is not soft on sin. The church, the scriptures say, is the bride of Christ. 
bought and paid for by his precious shed blood of Jesus on that cross. Therefore, the purity and the holiness of this church and every church under the name of Jesus matters to the Father. He cares about our purity. He cares about individually if our heart is right and true before him. He cares if we are a pure church. So knowing that, listen to me, we scandalize the holiness of God. We don't tarnish it, but we scandalize it when we appear to be a certain way. And we deceive and lie to God. God is not soft on sin. The Queen Mary was the largest ship to cross the oceans back when it was launched in 1936. Through four decades in a world war, the Queen Mary served until she was retired as a floating hotel and a museum in Long Beach, California. During the conversion into a hotel, there were three massive smokestacks on board the ship. They were taken off, and they were to be scraped down and to be repainted. But when they took the smokestacks off and they put them on the dock, they took them off the deck, they put them on the dock, and they prepared to fix up the smokestacks. You know what all three did? Crumbled right to the ground. There was nothing left of the three-quarter inch steel from which the stacks had been formed. All that remained, listen to this, were more than 30 coats of paint on the outside of these smokestacks. This great, amazing ship across the seas was keeping up appearances. It was deceptive. There was no strength in it. There was no power. The steel had rusted away. I'm going to say to you this morning, if the Lord is knocking on your heart and he's saying, you need to lay this down, you need to lay this down. If he's calling you to forsake some sin, listen to his voice. He's a loving father. He wants the very best for us. He's not a harsh dictator that is controlling us, demanding. He's saying, please, lay it down. You know what the blood of the cross does? It pleads with us to lay aside our sin and to come to him and receive freedom and grace, forgiveness and strength and peace. We will have no peace with our first and ultimate relationship, our Heavenly Father, if we continue to lie to Him and to deceive Him. I can fool you, and you can fool me. Not a person living can fool God. Can you pray with me?